If you look at, if you were to look at lists for the most intelligent people that have ever lived, you would come across names like Albert Einstein, Isaac Newton, formulated the theory of gravity, Leonardo da Vinci, who was a painter but also um, pretty accomplished as a sculptor, architect, musician, mathematician, engineer, inventor, botanist, writer, Copernicus, who proposed that the earth was a planet that rotated around the sun. If you were to look at the list of most influential people that have ever lived, you'd come across people like Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, even uh, Johann Gutenberg, the inventor of the mechanical printing press, would come up on some of those lists as of most influential people. If you were to look at lists of most successful people that have ever lived, you'll find names from, uh, for example, the business world, people like Cornelius Vanderbilt, who amassed a fortune through railroads and shipping, Andrew Carnegie, who um, became very wealthy through dominating the U.S. steel industry, John D. Rockefeller, who was America's first billionaire, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, more recently. You'd find names of artists and musicians, authors, J.K. Rowling, J.R.R. Tolkien, John Lennon, Madonna, Michael Jackson, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg. You'd find names of athletes who have had great success. Pele, Usain Bolt, Michael Jordan, Michael Phelps. Most of these individuals are well known to us, and, and many of them are well known hundreds of years after they, after they died. They're, because their vast knowledge and, or their unique abilities, um, their accomplishments and success, their great wealth have made them rise to the top of all of the billions of people that have ever lived on the earth. But what, is the, what if the measurement was wisdom? What if we, we were measuring wisdom? Where would these people on these lists land if it was a question of wisdom? And by wisdom, I mean the the practical skills necessary to live life in God's world in a way that leads to peace in all, all our relationships with God, with others, and within ourselves. Could we say that having great success and knowledge and skill and accomplishments and fame necessarily comes with wisdom? Of course not. We all know that. Just a few examples. Einstein obviously was very bright and is at the top of a lot of these lists. Uh, but according to one biography, while he was pragmatic and disciplined in his work, he was nothing but in his personal life. In fact, he was a bit of a mess. He was married twice, first to a former student, and then to his cousin, and his marriages were marred with affairs. Uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, according to another biographer, uh, he wrote, as successful as he would be in business, he was a terrible father and husband. A lifelong misogynist who wanted more than three sons, Vanderbilt paid little attention to his daughters and is believed to have cheated on his wife with prostitutes. In more recent years, we've heard about the chaos and, and harm in the lives of people like Michael Jordan, even Bill Gates, and we could 
go on. Now, the point in saying all of this is not to say that every person of influence or success or talent lacks wisdom. That's obviously not true. The point is that all of these measures of greatness in our world and in our hearts that we hold with such esteem do not necessarily come with wisdom. Do not necessarily lead to peace and human thriving. And yet, what do we continue to seek after? Um, Now, probably very few, if, if any of us, have any grand illusions of holding a place in history like these individuals and having our name have that sort of recognition. However, do we still believe in our hearts that what we need most is some measure of worldly success and wealth and influence and power? In, in our world, there's no shortage of opportunities to run after these things. There's no shortage of books and seminars and TED Talks to tell you how to do this. There's a huge industry built up around helping you gain wealth and influence and power. So you can do that. You can figure out how to do that pretty well. And lots of people are making money off of you figuring out how to do that pretty well. However, James, in writing his letter, is concerned about something else. And God, in writing, in, as the divine author of Scripture, is concerned about something else, and that is wisdom. And throughout Scripture, we find this priority on wisdom. And again, by wisdom, I mean the, the practical skills necessary to live life in God's world in a way that leads to peace and thriving in all of our relationships. God is... I mean, kind of the big idea where this all begins is that God is the author of life. Just he, he created life. He sustains life. He knows best how it's meant to live. And so if we are to understand that ourselves, if we are to have wisdom for this life, we must begin with God. And so that's what we're going to look at today um, in this pivotal section of James. So let's just start with James three thirteen. just the first sentence there to get us going. James begins, who is wise and understanding among you? So wisdom is, is a big theme in James. As we've said before, James is a kind of wisdom literature. It's, it's similar in some respects to the wisdom literature of the Old Testament like Proverbs. And while all of James is kind of wisdom literature, this section specifically today uh, just goes right, right at it and uh, the, the main theme here is wisdom. And so James says essentially here, who is wise? Who, who of you thinks that, that you are wise? Come forward, raise your hand. Let's, let's talk about wisdom. Let's talk about true wisdom, wisdom according to God. And then in the rest of these verses, he, he dives into that and unpacks what true wisdom is. And he tells us its source, where it comes from, its quality, what it's like, and its results, what it brings about when you live with this wisdom. So let's, I want to read the whole rest of the chapter here real quick, and then we'll work through it. Who is wise and understanding among you? Verse 13, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. 
But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So first, what is the source of wisdom? Where do we find wisdom? Well, James says that there is a wisdom that comes from above, from God, and then there is a something that might be thought of as wisdom, but it's really a not wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So the wisdom from above, as we peel back and, and look at the scripture as a whole, is begins with the fear of the Lord, right? Well-known phrase is repeated in Proverbs and the Psalms. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That's Proverbs 9.10. So, Knowing and acknowledging and living our lives before God is where all wisdom begins. We cannot know how this life is meant to be lived if we reject and ignore our creator. And so God calls us first and foremost to to come to him in faith, acknowledge him, to live our lives before him. And there's a lot in this world that appears to be wisdom, that is called wisdom, that may seem like wisdom, that has no fear of God, right? You can be seen as a very moral and ethical person, a very just person, a very religious and spiritual person, a very kind person even, and have no knowledge or fear of God, and thus really not know true wisdom. True wisdom is found in and begins with God. Uh, along, with the apostle, along with Paul, we, we should cry out, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. There is no end, no attaining on our own the wisdom of God. It is beyond us. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are beyond ours. But this doesn't mean we can't know anything of his wisdom, right? Um, God has given us his word in part to lead us in wise living. God wants us to have wisdom. Uh, at the beginning of James, James 1.6, he says, um, 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. So come, God invites us to come and find wisdom. Paul writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So the the word of God, especially the word of God's grace to us in Jesus, is the fountainhead of wisdom. And we are to let it dwell in us richly. That is, we are to hear it, to meditate on it, savor it, speak it to ourselves, speak it to others. In opposition to this is what the Bible calls folly. Right? Wisdom and folly are often contrasted against each other in Proverbs. And so if true wisdom begins with the fear of God, folly begins with rejecting and ignoring and dismissing God. Now, it would be nice if everything in life was just labeled like wise, foolish. This is the wise way. This is the foolish way. Um, it's, it's so nice in movies when you're watching, like, it's always readily clear who the bad guys are, for the most part. Like, this um, 
this music comes on that accompanies them every time. It's not happy, joyful music. They have a big scar across their face. They have this voice that's scary. It'd be nice if life was like that. Like, oh, good, bad, wise, foolish. But in reality, that's not the case. What is wise often seems foolish, and what is foolish often seems wise. What is good often seems evil, and what is evil often seems good. And so this is a call for us to continually and repeatedly come and learn and seek the wisdom from above. Through God's word, through his spirit, among his people. So that we are not learning that which is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. So, what does this wisdom look like? What is its quality? What is its character? James says it has certain qualities. So notice a couple things. Um, verse 13, about who is wise and understanding among you? And what does he say? By his good conduct, let him show his works. By his good conduct, let him show his works. So if you were to set up a test for um, evaluating if someone was wise, how would you do that? Perhaps we might think, well, we'd you know, give them a set of questions and have them answer these questions, see what knowledge they had, um, even perhaps doctrine, see what Christian doctrine and knowledge they had. What kind of tests would we use to figure out wisdom? Well, James does none of that. He says, by your works, by your conduct, he calls on those who, ass- who assert themselves to be wise to show their good works. And so wisdom is not just something inwardly, it's not just knowledge that we have, it's, it, it is knowledge, it includes knowledge, but it's knowledge applied to life. It is revealed by the way we live. As James has said elsewhere in chapter 2, faith without works is dead, which does not mean faith is replaceable, you don't need faith. True faith in God bears fruit. It leads to a changed life. And if we claim to have faith in God and his gracious salvation, but show no evidence of that in our lives, the problem is not necessarily just try harder, just keep working. The problem could be your faith is dead. You you have not truly beheld God in all of his glory and grace and truly repented and believed in him. And so your faith is not real faith, but is dead. And so this is why the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You have to start off with the fear of the Lord. You don't just start off with downloading a bunch of information and knowledge and and understanding. You have to start off with the fear of the Lord. And if we start there, the natural result will be wisdom in all areas of life. And then James goes on to describe what this looks like. And so you get this in a couple places in this, in, in this section, and if we're honest, I think we have to admit that his definition and description of wisdom is quite surprising. So verse 17, consider the words he uses to describe wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Likewise, in verse 13, he speaks of the meekness of wisdom. 
Uh, the NIV translates that the humility that comes from wisdom. We don't tend to use the word meek very often, meekness, but it's referring to gentleness, mildness. It also helps to define this and understand this if we look at what James contrasts with this wisdom. So he says its opposite is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, boasting. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, boasting. So there is a kind of living that comes from God that produces things like humility and gentleness and is full of mercy and brings about peace. And then there is a different kind of what might be called wisdom that rejects God that is full of selfish ambition and jealousy. Now, I said that this is, is kind of a surprising definition and explanation of wisdom, especially in our world. Against what the world and our sinful hearts want to believe, it is not wise to get everything you can out of life. It is not wise to merely live for yourself, to, to use others for your ends, to be jealous of what others have. It's not wise. Rather, true wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, knowledge of God, submission to God, and then humility and gentleness and kindness and compassion towards others. And if this is the case, I don't think we can say that these qualities are good and right and appropriate in certain situations, but in other situations, we, we need something else. We, and we can, we can move on from things like gentleness and, and mercy. No, the, the one who possesses wisdom from above, it seems to be saying, is characterized at all times by gentleness and humility and compassion. And I would say, even in, especially in times of conflict and opposition. Uh, if, you, if you do a search of all of the mentions of the gentleness in Scripture, and I, I think this would probably be the same with these other words, but if you look for the mentions of gentleness in Scripture, they often, even if, even if uh, usually, come up in situations where, they're, where it's the least likely thing that you were, you were going to be gentle, where it seems there's the most reason not to be gentle. Conflict, opposition, tension, uh, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, not harshness, not violence, not selfish ambition and pride, but gentleness. If anyone, Galatians 6, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Uh, to put this another way, pride and selfish ambition and, and jealousy are always foolish, are always illogical. However justified we may feel in our pride and, and, and selfish ambition, however good it may feel in the moment to go down those paths, it is always against reason. It is always illogical, foolish. And so one of the ways to combat 
those thoughts when they come is to just call out their foolishness. Like, it's actually not true, that thought I'm thinking right now. Now, when we talk about things like gentleness, one of the questions that we often have is, well, was Jesus really always gentle and meek in all situations? You, you have Jesus turning over the temp- tables in the temple, right? Um, you have Jesus speaking to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, pronouncing woes, calling woes down on them, calling them um, fools and worse. So we need to let things like this help us define what Christian gentleness and humility does and doesn't look like. Christian gentleness and humility certainly doesn't mean not having any convictions about right and wrong. It certainly doesn't mean that there's no universal standard for judging right and wrong. It also doesn't mean that we never speak up and we never do anything or say anything about what is right and wrong. There is a way to appear to be gentle and humble and wise that is really just fear of man, fear of conflict, fear of offending others, fear of appearing judgmental. And that's not what Jesus was. Jesus had no fear of man. Jesus had no problem speaking directly into situations, no problem offending anyone. In fact, he wouldn't, I mean, one, of the main, one of the reasons he was killed was that he so intensely offended people. And yet his attention, his intention, was not merely to offend. It was not merely to prove others wrong and to just leave them feeling condemned and lost. Even though Jesus, of all people, with a perfect love of what is good, like, we, we love what is good partially. Jesus loved what is good perfectly. And Jesus hated what is evil perfectly. Jesus, who had every right with such a character and with such perfection, who had every right to be consistently angry and judgmental and disappointed and outraged in, with the evil and sin all around him, he wasn't. He kindly and gently welcomed all kinds of people to himself. While he spoke with boldness and authority and and spoke directly into things, he welcomed people, welcomed all who would come to him with tenderness and gentleness and compassion and humility and mercy. You see this also in the very fact that God humbled himself and came into our world. God displays a humility, a gentleness, a compassion in coming into our world and being willing to endure suffering and death for our sake. This is part of the character of God. Dane Ortland writes, The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness his supreme uniqueness and otherness. No one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. Gentle and lowly. This, according to his own testimony, is Christ's very heart. 
This is who he is, tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, willing. This is not who he is to everyone indiscriminately. This is who he is for those who would come to him. For the penitent or humble, his heart of gentle embrace is never outmatched by our sins and foibles and insecurities and doubts and anxieties and failures. And so the ultimate reason that we are called to be meek or humble or gentle to others is that this is how God has been to us and is continually to us if we are in Christ. You can think about it like this. If you, if you had grown up and you, all you knew in your life was rejection, was harsh and abusive language, was just getting turned off and, and hurt and spoken to harshly by all of those around you, from your spouse, from your parents, from your friends, what is the likelihood that you're going to grow up and you're going to be gentle and kind and compassionate with everyone around you if you know nothing of that yourself? It's not very likely. However, if you know that there is a God and he is near and present and, and with you and he is continually welcoming you to himself with joy, with patience, with gentleness and tenderness, even if everyone else in your life treats you harshly, you have the motivation, you have the strength to do something different, to display something different than what everyone else is doing. And this is what we have. God has called us to give to others what he has given to us and continues to give to us. And I realize that there are many who will say, and perhaps you feel, that things, the characteristics like this are a sign of weakness. Gentleness, humility, meekness. That to live like this will make us weak and a pushover. First of all, if God is for us, who cares what others think about us, right? If God accepts us, who cares whether others do or not? But secondly, that's just not true. To display things like gentleness and humility, to be peaceable, to open to reason, full of mercy, impartial and sincere, takes incredible strength and self-control and, and faith in God. To do things like turn the other cheek, forgive someone over and over again when they sin against you, love your enemies, even when your enemy is a close friend, to endure persecution with patience. All of these require great strength. What is not strength is merely being outraged and vindictive and bitter at everyone that hurts you or disagrees with you. 
What is not strength is just getting whatever you want in life, whatever it costs others. So, consider in your own life. Would people say that you are a peaceable person? Do you tend to bring peace into situations? Which doesn't mean you don't get involved in conflict. Often it means you, you, you dive into conflict. Not because you love conflict. Not because you like arguing. Not because you like making enemies. But because you, you don't just eject from relationships when they get hard and you seek reconciliation even if it takes years. Would people call you a gentle person? Um, think generous or reasonable, accommodating, the opposite of violent, harsh, rough. And I think a good way to consider this is ask yourself, how easy do you think it is for others to come and have a hard conversation with you? To bring up something that, that maybe you've hurt, they feel hurt by you, offended by you, or to talk to you about um, some sin they see in your life. How easy do you think others feel? How welcome do you think others feel to come and have hard conversations with you? Or is that a, would they fee, be fearful and, and afraid to do that? As God is welcoming of us, are we welcoming? Are we gentle? Are we approachable? And if not, what can we do to be a more approachable person? Would people call you one who is open to reason? Are you willing to be persuaded? Are you willing to yield, even if it is incredibly humbling? Um, as James says earlier in the, in the letter, are we quick to listen? And slow to speak, slow to anger. Would people say you are full of mercy and or compassion? So especially when you have the right and the power to hurt someone, to get them back, to separate and divide from them because of how they hurt you, do you instead forgive and seek reconciliation? Are you full of mercy? Are these qualities present in your life, in your home, in your marriage, when you talk to your spouse, when you talk to your kids, when you talk to your parents, at your workplaces, at your schools? And of course, this has immense relevance for the state of our world and culture today. There are no shortage of opportunities to be mad and harsh with others. There's no shortage of excuses for making and for justifying the very, the exact opposite of this. Justifying, speaking harshly, tearing down others, and even in the church, taking matters of Christian conscience and excluding brothers and sisters over them. And, and I get it. Like, there, we live in a crazy, mad world. And a world that is increasingly hostile to many Christian convictions and ethics. And it can be maddening. And we are right to hate that which is evil. But we are not right to only know how to be mad and outraged and fearful and bitter. That's easy to do. 
Just like babies don't need to be taught how to be selfish, human beings apparently don't need to be taught how to be outraged. That's not a spiritual gift. Like it doesn't come through the spirit alone. Everyone can be outraged. What we do need the spirit for, what we do need God's word and God's people for, is the ability to hold tightly to Christian convictions and the fear of God boldly, while at the same time showing others undeserved compassion and gentleness and humility. We are typically great at doing one or the other, right? Either we're, we're gentle and compassionate with very little conviction, very little fear of God, or we, we're bold and fearless with our convictions but lack gentleness and humility and mercy. Jesus, as we have seen, was both. And we are called to do the same. And the implications of this, the, the fruit of this, are immense and obvious. So James talks about this here. He says, ignore this wisdom from above. And what will come about? Verse 16 says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So ignore these things. Ignore this wisdom from above. Humility, gentleness, peace. You will have a trail. You will leave in your wake a trail of disorder and chaos and evil. There will be lack of peace within yourselves, with God, with others. In contrast, verse 18, submit to the wisdom from above, and he says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So you may find yourself in conflict, you may find yourself persecuted, left out, you may find that you offend others, but living with God's wisdom will sow the seeds of peace and will bring about a harvest of peace and righteousness and goodness. A um, couple examples of this. You see it in the book of Acts as the early Christians um, are persecuted and have lots of things going wrong for them and have lots of people against them. And they don't freak out. They don't say, whoa, woe are we. Look what's happening to us. They pray for continued boldness to continue speaking the word of God, the very thing that is bringing about their hardships and persecution. They have peace with themselves, within themselves, and with God in the midst of persecution. Similarly, I had a fire department chaplain tell me that he knows right away when he walks into a room after a tragedy if the family, if the loved ones are Christians or not. There is a kind of peace, though there is mourning, though there is sadness, um, though there is grief, there is a very different and noticeable kind of peace that Christians have in tragedy. And he says he sees it regularly. So what sort of harvest or scent or trail are we leaving behind us as we go through life? In our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, online. Especially as Submission to God and his word is increasingly seen as weird and offensive and even unjust. Uh, do we merely act like a, a boxer losing the fight or a politician down in the polls and just flail about trying to keep whatever sort of 
power and respect we had? Do we turn to play dirty to try to keep in the race? Similarly, do we just change our convictions so as not to be seen as weird and offensive, which is really just another way to cling to worldly power and influence? Or do we hold tightly to our convictions with both our words, with our life, while at the same time showing others this very grace and compassion and welcome and gentleness that God has shown us? May this be the case, uh, especially among us as brothers and sisters in Christ, in this incredibly divisive season we, in, we are in, in this culture of outrage, in this time where for some reason God has permitted there to be just incredible upheaval and bitter fighting in the church, may we fight for this wisdom from above that leads to peace. It, it, it will be called weakness. It will be called unjust and oppressive. You're not doing enough. You shouldn't associate with those people. You shouldn't treat those people so compassionately. It will be dismissed. It will be called foolish. But a harvest of righteousness and peace and and goodness and life is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray.